That's right. So anyway, listen, we're going to uh, jump into our uh, text this morning pretty quickly in the Gospel of John. We're going to continue our study there. If you'd like to follow along, if you'll head over to John chapter 11, please. We've got a big story that we want to cover here, and it's, you know, it's just, it's just the best. So, uh, uh, and I really want to be able to dig into it uh, today. Last week, we finished up chapter 10 visiting with us or not familiar, we're just going through the books of the Bible, uh, chapter at a time, chapter ver- chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We want to read it, read it in its context, see what it is that it's trying to communicate to us. So we're in the middle of a study of the Gospel of John. We finished up chapter 10 last week. Jesus made some remarkable statements about his connection to God the Father. Uh, and uh, Janelle really challenged us to consider what it means to us that Jesus has self-identified as being divine. Uh, this also marked the, the end of the first section of John's gospel. So remember, uh, John is broken up uh, kind of like this. It's on, it's on your bulletin as well. Um, breaks down into two basic uh, works here. The book of signs, which is chapters 2 through 12, and then the book of, book of glory, which is chapters 13 through 20. In between, we have chapters 11 and 12, which are the preparation for glory. So the next two chapters that we're in uh, will have Jesus' glory, his kingship, in view thematically in, in what it is that we're looking at here. Uh, when, when chapter 10 concluded... Uh, we looked at the, the last Jewish festival, Hanukkah, that John has put Jesus in contrast with. He was contrasting Jesus with the various festivals of Israel, letting us know that there's a messianic replacement in that, that these things have now been replaced in, in Christ uh, uh, for the people of God. At the end of chapter 10, because of this mounting hostility between the religious leaders and Jesus, Jesus left Jerusalem to the wilderness area, and he actually went back to where this whole thing began. He went out near the Jordan River where John had been baptizing. So it brings the book of signs to a full circle. We're right back where we started there. Chapter 11 opens while Jesus is still out there in the sticks. And, and in this chapter, Jesus is going to perform the last of the miracles that John records in his Gospels. It's also the seventh sign around which he has built this, this Gospel. And in this morning's text, we're going to read about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It's a very familiar story. If you've been around church at all, you, you may have some familiarity with it. Uh, but like all of John's stories... This is not just a straightforward, triumphal report of an amazing miracle. There's a lot of twists and turns in this story that force us to contemplate it, to to look at what it is that this is actually trying to communicate to us. One thing that we want to remember is why John wrote this gospel. Back in its introduction, he was letting us know that if we want to know what God is like, we look closely at Jesus. He is the revelation of who God the Creator is. So we want to know what He's like, we look at Him. We want to keep all of that in mind as we look at this passage today, because while it's an account of something I believe actually happened... It's parabolic in so many ways. There's imagery that comes through in this that's instructive as well. It teaches us, well, primarily, it teaches us about the lordship of Jesus, his ultimate power in all things. But it also gives us this remarkable glimpse into the ways that God unfolds his work in our lives, how God is is interacting with us in ways that are oftentimes uh, surprising and we could be honest and say confusing. One of the biggest issues that we wrestle with 
as followers of Jesus, is the huge question of why, right? Why? Why does God allow things to happen? Why does why do things happen the way they do in our in our situations in our lives? Does he just not care? Does he maybe not know what my plight is? Maybe we're just not important enough in the grand scheme of things for God to bog down with us. And listen, those are legitimate and and troubling questions that we as followers of Jesus have to wrestle with. We've got to face up to these things and realize it's never going to do us any good to paper over these things with platitudes and assume that these aren't the real struggles that we go through. And I believe John's gospel is here addressing these things for that very purpose, to keep us from trying to just paper over things. So what do we do when our hopes die? And where was God when those dreams were dying? That's what we're going to consider as we explore this passage. And let's see what we can discover about this Jesus that, that we're seeking to know, that we're, we're trying to follow. So if you're there in John chapter 11, we're going to start with verse 1. It says, A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. You're trying to go there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there's a danger of stumbling because they have no light. No explanation on that one. Okay. Uh, Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But now I'll go and wake him up. The disciples said, oh, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you'll really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go to and die with Jesus. (laughs) Okay, so... First, let's figure out who these characters are in this story. Mary and Martha, they should be somewhat familiar to us. Uh, If we're familiar with these biblical stories at all, they were included in Luke's gospel where Martha was busy in the kitchen working and preparing a meal. And Mary, on the other hand, was out with the men learning and being discipled. And Martha was scandalized by that. You can read about that in Luke chapter 10. No brother named Lazarus is mentioned in that account. Uh, this is the first we read of him. Apparently, the siblings were close. They seemed to live either, you know, either together or in close proximity in the little village of Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. John gives us a little flash forward into the next chapter in verse 2, telling us Mary's going to be anointing Jesus with oil. We'll get to that when we get to that. It's very likely 
this was a family that Jesus would stay with when he'd be traveling because, you know, obviously he had to have stops along the way as he was traveling around these areas. Uh, So maybe when he would come to Jerusalem, he would stay in Bethany with them. Jesus knows them and it says that he loved them. And that is a very important detail for us to keep in mind as we're reading this account. The area where Jesus was staying was likely a day's journey from Bethany. So when Lazarus got sick, we can imagine his sisters are assessing the situation, getting concerned, and they realize it's crucial. They've got to send word to Jesus, get him to come and and pray for their brother. So I imagine they send a messenger, and I can picture him making that day's journey, and he's going to all the various encampments that are there by the river, and he's checking to see where Jesus is. Anybody know where Jesus is? And they point down this way. Finally gets to the place where Jesus and crew are camping and he says to him, you know, out of breath and everything, hey, you got to come back with me. Martha and Mary sent word their brother, Lazarus, you're the one you love is, is very sick. And Jesus looks at him and says, all right, take this message back to them. And the guy's like, wait, wait, what? You're not coming with me? Jesus said, no, no, but here, take this message. It's born in, in, in death. Right now, I mean, just think about this for a second. Put yourself in the position of that messenger having to go. No, actually, better than that, put yourself in the position of Martha and Mary who, who reached out for help. I mean, they know the situation is desperate. And when they realize Jesus hasn't come, like this guy makes the day's journey back to, to Bethany. And he shows up there at, at their house and there's people crying and wailing. There's, there's professional mourners playing little tunes and stuff. And he walks in and she comes out and greets him and looks around and says, where's, where's Jesus? And he's just like, you know, he's not, he's not coming. She's like, he's not coming. What do you mean he's not coming? And he goes, well, he gave me this message that this isn't going to result in, in death. Uh, it's for God's glory. And she's like, that makes absolutely no sense. Because Lazarus is already dead. He died right after you left. How would you feel if you were Martha or Mary? I mean, we gotta, this does us no good if we don't step into this and, and try it on for size and feel this stuff. What do you feel in this? You've sent for a friend that you really believe can help in your situation. And he doesn't come to your aid. It's not that he came and wasn't able to help. It's that he just doesn't even show up. What would you be feeling at that moment? I'm hearing it all. And that's it. That's right, right? And there's nothing to be ashamed of. That's the reality of it. That's how you're going to feel in that. Have you ever faced some critical need or situation and called out to Jesus for his help only to get silence in response? The story in John 11 is providing us with an insight about that. In many ways, this is giving us a meta-narrative picture of our lives as we follow Jesus through this broken world. When heaven is silent, it's so tempting to think that that God doesn't care. Maybe we're just really not that important to him after all. Maybe we failed him in some way that we didn't realize. Or, you know what, maybe there's no plan in this at all. If you've ever felt alone in thinking those things or feeling those things, this story should be eye-opening because we see here from this story that our prayers often feel as though they're unanswered. I'm so glad I came to church today. <laughs> Look, the, but here's the thing. This story is here for a reason. We're afforded a glimpse into God's ways, which are totally different from our ways, from our understanding of things. I mean, 
Verse 6 just seems, from a human perspective, unthinkable when, when you look at this. He heard Lazarus was ill. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That doesn't make sense. Like, it's, in my mind, it should have read when he heard the friend that he loved was sick. He caught the first flight. He called for an Uber. He drove all night to get to where he was. Not he stayed where he was. Didn't make a move for two days. Does that sound like the way we would expect someone to respond when someone they loved needed them? But we're learning here that God's responses are calibrated to things of eternal significance. It's much like what we learn from the book of Job. The whole reason the book of Job is there for us. There's more going on than we're able to perceive. And don't mistake this. When I say that God's God's reactions are calibrated to eternal things, it doesn't mean that he's callous. Don't mistake it for callousness. And we're going to see that's not the case in, the min- in a minute as this story goes on. But it's a different understanding of events from the divine perspective. Death does not mean the same thing to Jesus as it does to us. What an important thing to kind of keep in mind. John's account here clues us in that the delay is purposeful. He's already indicated the first purpose, to bring glory to God. Much like we read about the man who was born blind. God didn't cause the blindness, but was able to leverage that broken state into something that revealed his glory and the bigger idea of God's redemption in this. So the bigger picture, the larger view of redemption is in play in all the events of our lives. Nothing that happens to us is without significance. doesn't mean God causes any of these things, but that all of these things can be significant in light of eternity. And I believe we're learning that here in this passage. This account is meant to encourage us to trust beyond what we can see. To, to have a hope that stretches past the deadline. Something that's fixed in eternity. Something that, that understands death differently. When Jesus is ready to go, he tells the disciples that they're going to head back to Judea. And naturally, you know, they're freaking out. What are you talking about? What, are you going to go back there? Does the word stoning you to death mean anything? In, you know, but Jesus answers with this strange little proverb about walking in the light. light. Likely what he's trying to get across here is that he is the light. He knows what's going on. He knows what he's doing. He's not walking into a trap that will catch him unawares. He is the light. He's moving. He's doing everything according to the plan as it's unfolding. But also, this is a prelude to glory. Jesus in this is putting his life on the line to give life to another. This is how he ascends his throne. Uh, This is how he moves into glory. Self-sacrificial love that's meant to resonate with us. I hope that it does. But anyway, he lets them know more of what's going on. He tells them Lazarus is sleeping. And of course, they perk up going, oh, cool, he's recuperating. That should be fine then. And then he's, I'm sorry, what I meant is Lazarus is dead. But I'm glad for your sake because this is going to encourage your faith. So there's another clue about these delays. Trust is going to come as a result of them. And it's working for the best, not only of one person's life, but for a lot of people. 
And so we have to keep reminding ourselves in these struggles, in these trials, when heaven seems silent to us, the the things that we face will lead us to maturity if we'll allow them to. God has our best in mind. That's something that's that that comes like a rhythmic drumbeat all through Scripture. He's got our best at heart, whether we understand what's going on or not. We may feel abandoned in the immediate, but if we'll keep our hearts and our minds open, God can bring good things to pass even from our broken dreams. A.B. Simpson, who was the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance Church, wrote way back, like at the turn of the century, that our dreams have, our, our prayers have to have the marks of the cross on them. So often we pray for something, hoping and believing, only to see it buried and, and, and forgotten, to come forth later on, bearing fruit we never had imagined before. Jesus didn't head out to stop death from happening in this. I mean, let that sink in. He determined to work through death to bring about new life. Again, keeping that meta-narrative in mind. The the section ends here with Thomas, of doubting Thomas fame. The whole time he's just like, well, Jesus goes, let's go wake the dead. And Thomas goes, nah, let's just join them. Let's go be one of them. But most likely that's a statement of loyalty. You know, if Jesus is going to face death as he goes back to Judea, then... We'll stay with him to the end. That's likely the idea, but it's worded strangely. And I, I think it's because of John's love for irony in this, that he's putting those two uh, ideas juxtaposed together that way. Anyway, the narrative continues. Verse 17. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, he went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you asked. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he'll rise and everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, "Eh, yeah, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even after dying, everyone who will live even after dying, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary and she called Mary to the side uh, from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and he wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were in the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus's grave to weep, so they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and he saw the other people wailing with her, A deep anger welled up in him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? he asked. And they told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Okay, so the drama's intense at at this point. When Jesus finally shows up, 
the two sisters take turns going to articulate their grievances. And they both basically say the same thing to him, or at least begin that way, if only you'd have been here. Man, if, if, if this isn't the refrain of a, a broken world, if only, if only, if, I mean, how many times have we lamented over circumstances and things in our lives with those words? If only I'd have said this and not that. Or if only she would have left two minutes later. Or if only my resume hadn't gotten lost. Or if only it had gone to the doctor sooner. Or if only God would have answered this prayer on time. Martha came to him looking for some assurance in her understanding, trying to get him to say something that would help it all make sense. And she even says with what faith she can that even though he didn't come sooner, even though she's hurting, she's still willing to believe in who Jesus is. And so Jesus tells her his plan. Well, your brother's going to rise again. And you can almost hear the resignation in her voice as she says this. Yeah, I know. That's, That's what we hope for. In the end time, we'll all rise again. But at that... Jesus gives his next statement of I am in this. Remember, I am, the covenant name that God gave to Israel. Hey, yeah, I am. And he says, I am the resurrection, Martha. I am the life. If you believe in a resurrection, resurrection, Martha, it's going to happen because of me. Jesus was taking a, a doctrinal idea out of the abstract and he's validating her hope because of who he is. That's what he's communicating there. He's letting her know this incredible truth that the future hope is reaching back into the present through Jesus. It's letting us know that there's more in life beyond physical death and that that whole and eternal life can be felt in the present and that all sorts of possibilities are still in play, both now and in the world to come. He wasn't invalidating her expectation of a final resurrection. In fact, he was actually reinforcing it, saying it will happen because of me. And the big question for Martha, and ultimately it's a big question for us, is do I believe this? Because that's what he asked her. Will you believe this? It's more like, will you? Will you? Will you believe it? Not believe that miracles can happen. Not, you know, the idea of if I've got enough faith, everything's going to go my way or nobody ever gets sick. But believe in Jesus' lordship over death so that our definition of death comes into harmony with who he is. Martha needed help in her understanding of things to reassure her faith. Mary, on the other hand, needed some emotional support. She comes out... And, and, and starts the same way, but just falls at his feet weeping. And we notice how Jesus meets them both in, according to their needs. He interacts with Martha in, on that intellectual level. He interacts with Mary the same way. He doesn't try to explain anything to her at all. But in verse 33, when he saw her weeping, when he saw everyone weeping, anybody got a Bible open or an LT? Anybody have one with them? Somebody have it? What's he say in verse 33, NLT? A deep, a deep anger welled up in him. That's something. I mean, that's, that's interesting to me. If our dreams have died, if our heart is breaking, we need to know this, that even in our suffering and our grief, God knows, God cares, and he's at work. 
If we want to know what God is like, we take a long, hard look at Jesus. And I don't see some disinterested observer here. I don't see some compassionless, pragmatic, cosmic architect putting things together. When he sees this pain and this heartache, the NLT and and other modern translations say he was angry. The Greek word embryo ahomai, in classical Greek, it described the snort of a war horse. And when it was applied to humans, it meant fury or anger. And we had to think about that. Fury or anger in this. What's that about? Maybe he was angry at the sorrow that death has brought into this world. Regardless of why, we see he is deeply invested in what's happening in this situation. In verse 35, it's the shortest verse in all of the Bible, but the volumes, those two words convey to us are astounding. What it reveals about God's heart towards us is stunning. Jesus wept out of anger at death, out of compassion for the grieving because of all of it. Think about this. You serve a God who weeps with you over the brokenness of this world. He's angry and he weeps. And then Jesus heads out to the tomb four days later than everybody had hoped for. Well past too late. But he reveals he had a plan all along. And the thing is, part of the maturation process for us as followers of Christ involves learning how to wait. And I know that is a hard sell for modern Americans. (laughs) Waiting is not our, our strong suit. But we need to develop confidence, not so much in the way that God will work or the when of God working, but that he will act. He will work on our behalf to redeem and resurrect. And if not now, then in the world to come. A belief in the resurrection and the life. He knows that we hurt. And to me, the most comforting thing in the world that I've ever read is that he hurts with us. But he is at work. And John includes this story to tell us that. He knows. He cares. But he's at work. We have to trust him. We wait in hope, even while we cry out from the depths to God, because the alternative is to lose hope and to spiral into despair, which, if we're going to be honest and real, is a chronic temptation for us as believers. I mean, hey, this Eastgate, we can be honest about that. The good Christians don't know this place exists. But however, I love the delayed reaction on that laugh. <laughs> Took a second there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yes, all right. It's a three-star church. However tempting, however human, however understandable it may be, hopeless despair is not a Christian place to live. It's just not. When our hopes seem to have died... Remember, God knows, He cares. When we're weeping, believe it, He's weeping with us. But He is still at work in it all. And like A.B. Simpson said, one day we'll see something grow we never anticipated. Let's finish this part of the narrative this morning, verse 38. Jesus was still angry as He arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across the entrance. Roll the stone aside, He told them. But Martha 
the dead man's sister. I love how John describes him here. The dead man's sister. It's not Lazarus. It's the dead man's sister protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you'd see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. And you think about the fact that Jesus was angry at this point. So in some ways, I kind of imagine him kind of glaring over at her saying, didn't I tell you? And she's like, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, get somebody to get that stone out of it. So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they'll believe that you sent me. And Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave cloths and his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. And that's where we're going to stop today with this forecast of our hope in the resurrection. But I imagine this scene. So four days earlier, they rolled this big stone in front of the entrance of the cave where they had buried him. They would always bury people in, in, in rock caves, usually with little shelves carved in it. They'd put the body in there, let it decompose, then pull the bones out and put them in ossuary. So he's been in there for four days earlier. They rolled that stone. It falls into place with a thud. And it's almost like the final sigh of resignation because there is no chance for remedy anymore. He's no longer Lazarus, the dead man in John's description. And that stone, the very emblem of finality and defeat, is what Jesus tells them to move out of the way. Get that thing out of my way. I'm not done here yet. But Martha pushes back as as because she's reasonable. I mean, because it's too late. It's just like, you know, Jesus, this is, we're past this. It's too, I mean, this is an old wound, Jesus. The whole thing stinks. How many impossible situations have we resigned to? How many hurts and disappointments have we just buried away? We're just going to push that down and try to forget. We're unwilling to face it anymore. Martha says, it's over, Jesus. It's over. I need closure. Don't open that back up uh, uh, again. It's not presentable. There's this terrible stench to the whole thing. Let's just move on. Can we just move on? But Jesus doesn't waver. And I wonder if we can hear his message in this. Because her protests are unheeded completely. And they're rational protests. They are. Let's not throw Martha under the bus. She's right. He's been dead for four days. And this would be a terrible situation to get yourself into if you didn't know something else. But Jesus doesn't waver. We're not just moving on, Martha. I didn't come just to patch things up. I came to redeem. I didn't come to just pat you on the head in the midst of all your broken dreams. I came to open up dreams you never thought were possible before. Didn't I tell you that if you'd believe it, you'd see the glory of God? In the face of hopes that may seem to have died, we need to remember there is no ruin. I don't know what I did. No ruin beyond God's power to redeem. So they roll that stone away. And there's a scene I like to imagine. Uh, it's just such a, it's such a powerful scene 
with, with such an economy of words. So it makes it difficult. When you're reading it, it's hard to get the full impact of it. You've got to just sit in it for a moment and, and allow some of the details to, to slip in and kind of seep into the narrative uh, from outside it. But you think about that scene. Like you get a couple guys there. They get a, a, you know, a, a strong log to roll that thing out of the way. And the tomb is open. And I'm sure people are covering their faces. But other people are still crying and weeping and wailing. And they're playing a pipes and stuff because it's professional mourners and that's what they do and all of this is going on and Lazarus uh, Jesus says Lazarus come out and all of a sudden there's a scuffling sound inside of that tomb and everything goes silent (laughs) and everybody's just staring at that did I hear that did you hear that and then little by little you see something's moving inside of that tomb and then bound up with his hands not moving suddenly a figure comes pushing his way out of that little entrance and the man, Lazarus, <laughs> the man formerly known as dead, shuffles to the opening. What do you do if you witness something like that? What would you, I mean, you faint, you run away, and I'd probably be a combination of both. Start running and then faint or, or something like that. I'm not even sure. And there's a whole separate sermon in those words, unwrap him and let him go. We don't have time for that today, but just take a walk sometime and ponder the significance of removing the wrappings of death once life has been regained. But this morning, I want us to see that God's timing and response to our prayers often surprise and confuse us. But Jesus reveals that God passionately cares about our needs. And we're challenged to be open to all the possibilities of how it is that he may breathe new life into our dying hopes. There's a fundamental order of things that are revealed here as we break it down, we think about it. God is redeeming this universe that he made and that he loves. This is his plan. That is the gospel. God restoring all things. And when we cry out to the depth, we cry out from the depths to God, God hears. He hears. We may not see anything happening, but we have to believe and trust. He hears us. And when Jesus seems slow to respond, he is responding nonetheless. And when we worry that it's all too late, Jesus shows us that late is a temporal idea. After we're convinced that everything is lost and we're ready to resign to fate, when we simply want to just contain the damage and bury it away, Jesus demonstrates that there is no loss, no death, no tragedy, no broken dream that can put a person or, or, or a situation or even this whole world out of God's reach to redeem it and to renew it. There is no place that's beyond his infinite love and abundant life. And he told us if we'd believe it, if we'd embrace the possibilities of him at work in this world and in our lives, we'd see the glory of God. It may not happen when we want it. It may not look like what we thought it would, but it will be good. That's the promise of Romans 8:28. God's working through all things, all of this stuff, for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So let's accept this challenge from John's gospel. Let's endeavor not to to give up hope in him. No matter what we may be seeing, let's not resign to despair. Let's allow him to speak life into us, no matter what impossible situation 
we may face. And let's make him glad by allowing these struggles to mature us in our faith. Let's commit today to renew our hope in him, not in circumstances necessarily, but in him who triumphed over death. Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with me if you're able. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for this amazing story. It's the last account of a miracle we'll read in this gospel until we get to the resurrection. But wow, what a, what a miracle it is. And I'm, I'm so grateful to you, God, that you revealed it the way you did. This could have been a story where Jesus marches in and makes everything right and we don't get the other aspects of the silence and confusing and perplexing parts of the story. You put it all in there and you put it there for us to give us something to cling to, to remind us that you're at work and that you do care. And so I pray for everyone here, Father. We all come in with some level of burden. That's the nature of this world. I I would almost guarantee there's not a soul here that doesn't have a, a burden that's weighing on their hearts. So, Father, in the midst of these burdens that we stand here with, in the midst of all the the various stages of our own prayers to you and our own attempts at seeking your help, remind us, Lord, that you love us. Help us see you as a Savior who weeps with us. Help us to see your anger at the way this world has become so broken and the pain that it, it creates. Help us, Father, to find hope and confidence in your words that you are the resurrection and the life. Help us to believe even when we struggle. Help our unbelief. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.